You're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Hi, everyone. This is Andreas Steno speaking, and um, I have a new co-host with me this week since Alfonso Picacello feels a bit under the weather, but um, you've met him before on the show. Jack Farley, it's good to see you again. <laughs> Great to be here, Andreas. Uh, best of health to Alf. We wish you a, a speedy recovery. Uh, you know, I'm not going to make any any jokes about milk in the coffee or anything because you're you know, you're sick and we want you to get better. Yeah, definitely. But um, let's get to business, Jack. Um, it's earnings season. We've had quite a few poor numbers coming out of technology companies over the course of the week. So, what do you make of the uh, U.S. earnings season so far? What are the headlines? It hasn't been great. Andreas, you know, in, so for U.S. stocks, earnings season really starts with the big banks, and that season, you know, it, it went okay. Um, and then you had the smaller companies, but the real large companies began yesterday on October 25th, and Google reported after hours, after market close, and it, it fell sharply, uh, so much so that actually, uh, including today's price action, it's down nine percent. So that's you know. Uh, could could be up to $100 billion. I know Meta just reported its figures as well. Uh, very, very bad. Let me pull up uh, the statistics. Um, revenues were down 4% year over year. And it's rare to have revenues down. You know, income's down, okay. But revenue's down 4%. That uh, partly was because of a strong dollar. Uh, on a constant currency basis, it would be up 2%. Um, but yeah, Meta's lost about $60 billion since market closed as of yesterday. And uh, earnings were down 49% year over year. Revenues down 4%. Costs up 19%. So we're seeing inflation uh, going up, as well as you know, uh, Facebook spending a lot on the metaverse. Uh, so I'm noticing a, yeah, a theme of revenue growth slowing, uh, incomes falling because costs are rising faster than revenues, and that it, yeah, it's it's been a pretty wicked cocktail so far. Um, Apple hasn't reported yet. They'll report tomorrow on the 27th. But so far, Facebook and Google, it has not been good, particularly Facebook. Uh, Microsoft actually had a decent quarter, but um, the stock is still suffering. So yeah, this the Nasdaq was down about 2% today. And you, you know, I mean, does it, does it really matter if some industrial company is, is doing really well? I know some chicken wing company, I think that the ticker is literally W-I-N-G, did really well because the cost of chicken, the input cost went down. We had some chicken deflation, um, <laughs> food deflation, which I know you, you follow a lot, Andreas. Yeah. But you know, does, that, does that really matter for the S&P? No. It matters what Apple does, what Facebook, Google, Microsoft. And so far, it's pretty grim, or at least that's what the market thinks. So, um, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think this is, a, this is a pretty typical pattern uh, at this juncture of the economic cycle, right? Because what you referred to on the cost side is typically something you see with the time lag to the economic activity, right? Right now we see those wage pressures rising. We see the increasing cost pressures on on energy uh, and other input costs as a consequence of what happened over summer. Uh, and frankly speaking, that's what we see in the earnings um, reports right now. And on a, uh, on a company level, if you look at the development um, for Google or for Facebook, I'm not too surprised that we start seeing cracks appearing um, in, in, in both, of, both their top line, but also their um, general earnings cap uh, capacity, since they tend to lack the cycle of small caps. We should remember that small caps are clients of Facebook and Google. 
Uh, and when we see a sharp downturn in, in small caps, as we've seen um, over the course of this year, it's typically something that spills over to the big ones with the time lag. Uh, so they are both hit um, with the time lag from this downturn among small caps, and they're also under severe cost pressures from, from rising wages, etc. Uh, so I guess this is a pretty bearish signal, if you ask me, and it basically fits my book pretty well, what you just depicted on, on tech stocks. Uh, I recently turned very bearish on, on tech stocks as a consequence of, of this time lag um, on, um, on wage pressures and the time lag from small caps underperforming to, um, to the actual performance of, of the big ones having small caps as, as clients. Yes, it would be interesting to see that these net incomes, the, the earnings compared to 2019, what well, there you go, because 2020 and 2021, they were so inflated because of massive stimulus and, and, and base effects um, that, you know, now, oh, Google's only making a dollar and six cents per share compared to a dollar and 40 cents in third quarter of last year. But a dollar and 40 cents was a little bit too high because everyone was staying at home and people still <laughs> were spending lots of money. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see. But but so Andreas, if large large caps follow small caps, so first small caps are weak, and then you you have a fall in the large caps, isn't that kind of bullish for the market? Because what else can crash? Uh, you know, so, you know, we're going to have everything's going to crash together for like a few weeks. The VIX is going to spike, and then boom, it starts going up again, right? I think what we need um, before we can sort of convincingly call the bottom is convincing signals that the rate of change in the economic momentum has bottomed. And that's clearly not the case. Um, if you look at the most recent uh, signals um, on lagging indicators or coinciding indicators, we've actually had almost a, a, an acceleration through Q Q3, which was also the reason why we saw this rebound in equities. Uh, but right now we clearly see a deceleration again. Uh, and I mean, mo given the most recent signals being sent by the, by the yield curve, um, we've had an inversion of the 10-year, uh, three-month spread, um, the recession indicator number one, right? Uh, it's got a hit rate of very close to 100%, if not 100%. Uh, then I would suppose that we have declining growth momentum for a couple of quarters, at least still ahead of us. Uh, so I'm not yet willing to call the bottom, uh, even though you're honestly right that if everything starts falling apart at the same time, it's usually at least a decent bill whether that the central bank pricing will become less aggressive. Yes, I think if we were in a time of the Fed put is still here and there was low inflation, I think we would be months away from an equity bottom, but that's not the case. So yeah, I, I also am not calling for an equity bottom to be clear. In fact, <laughs> I may, Andres, I may call for an equity top, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, so yeah, tell us the yield curve inverted, uh, many different types of yield curves. So that's when longer term interest rates are lower than shorter term interest rates. And so, you know, first it was the 10 year, seven year inverted, then the 10 year, five year, then the 10 year, three year, then the 10 year, two year. That's what people started talking about maybe six months ago. And now fine. And when, when the 10 year, two year inverted, a lot of people who, um, you know, had some good relationships with the Fed started saying, oh, it's the 10 year, three month, Jack, Andreas, it's the 10 year, three month spread. That, and that is still, uh, positive. That is not inverted yet, but now that has inverted. And yeah, I mean, do, do you have any thoughts on just like wh which one is appropriate? Uh, is, is, are you a 10-2 type of guy or are you, you one of these 10-3 month types of people? 
or um, yeah, and also um, do you just have a thesis on like why and why is an inverted yield curve indicating of a recession? Well, well, first of all, I'm. I mean, I don't think it's rocket science. Um, so <laughs> it's rather religion uh, in a sense. <laughs> so depending on your time horizon, um, you could look at various points on the yield curve. Um, so if you look at the 10 minus two year spread, it usually delivers a decently strong signal for recessions with a high hit ratio, but with a pretty long time lag, right? So when yes. the ten, tens twos invert, you got in between 12 and 18 months to position for a recession. When the 10 year, three month spread inverts, it's a much more alarming spread inversion since it's much closer to the actual recession date uh, that it usually occurs, right? Uh, so to put it a little bit jovial, uh, you could say that when the tens twos invert, so the spread between the 10 year and two year point, you should start talking about a recession. But when the 10 year minus three month spread inverts, you should start positioning for a recession because it's around the corner, right? Uh, so I think this is a very firm signal that it's time to look for recession bets in your portfolio. Uh, and it's very rare that we get a solid bottom in markets until after the actual recession is happening, right? Uh, and I wouldn't bet that we are already in a recession. It's probably close, but we are not in the recession yet. Even in Europe? Oh, that's a different question. <laughs> I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I spent the last uh, three and a half weeks in Italy, um, and it certainly didn't feel like a recession was upcoming. I mean, all cars were rented out, uh, hotels were pretty full, etc. But um, if you look at, at the prices paid for, for electricity and natural gas, uh, even though prices have come down quite a, quite a bit, uh, we could get back to that. Um, it's it's still more than enough to to safely call for a recession already this quarter. Uh, on my models, German real GDP will probably drop in between six and eight eight percent annualized, um, just as a consequence of energy prices, because I mean much of the storage. Um, a lot of the contracts being implemented forward, they've been um, paid at, at, at extreme price levels. Uh, and we already see that the industry in Germany is suffering. Uh, we see um, uh, closures of, of, uh, of industrial companies. We see manufacturing slowdowns all across the board. So I think it's pretty fair to say that, that Europe is already in a recession. And that's frankly not something the U European Central Bank is willing to admit to yet. <laughs> uh, which makes for a pretty interesting macro backdrop. Uh, I'm not necessarily super bullish on Europe, um, given that cocktail. So yeah, yeah, you wrote about how the German recession, German recession in Germany right now, is going to be worse than the 2008-2009 recession. Tell us why you think that's the case, and also, is it different now because the recession is coming on the production side, not on the consumption side? It's not that people aren't buying stuff; they are buying stuff. It's just companies aren't making stuff because it's so expensive because of the energy crisis. Yeah. I, I see a, a clearly bigger risk in Europe uh, of a stagflationary scenario compared to the US. Um, since this kind of a, of a recession um, is clearly centered around the manufacturing sector, uh, which also leads to supply scarcities. 
uh, in, in various manufacturing goods in the European economy already now, and uh, we should probably expect that to continue into next year as a consequence of a lack of manufacturing. Uh, so even though we see um, an easing supply chain burden across the board globally right now, I would argue that locally in Europe, we actually see an, an increasing stress on the supply chain as a consequence of high energy prices uh, and as a consequence of a lack of supply due to these high energy prices. And that could lead inflation to stay higher for longer in Europe compared to elsewhere. Uh, due to this lack of supply locally. Uh, so this is a slightly more stagflationary scenario than what we had in 2008, 2009, where inflation uh, fell off a cliff in Europe. Uh, and it makes for a really interesting backdrop um, when it comes to macro and and, and, um, and positioning in your portfolio into such a scenario. It's, it's not easy to find something to buy uh, because bonds are not a good buy either, um, if I'm right that right. this is more of a stagflation scenario. Uh, you should probably rather look for opportunities to place cash outside of the eurozone or um, buy physical assets um, to sort of hedge against this scenario. So yeah, what is it? What are good things to buy in a recession? You said bonds aren't good because inflation will still be high, but I know that you think inflation will fall, and you you have a strong view. You said it's hard for you to see a way in which inflation. Uh, won't follow over the coming months. And let's say, yeah, in the, in the US, you have a typical recession, you buy bonds, you sell your energy stocks, and you buy your technology stocks, your secular growth companies. But uh, sounds like it might be a slightly different uh, uh, cocktail for the re recession this time around. So what, what are we buying, Andreas? Well, if you're a European, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to at least partly hide in US dollars still. Um, so buy dollar assets, uh, just because of the FX effects, I think it's a good entry point again, now that we're just above parity in Euro dollar. Uh, then, uh, I've also added a few positions in Latin America <laughs> as a hedge against this. Mm -hmm. Um, the explanation is pretty straightforward. Uh, the inflation in Brazil, for example, is lower than the inflation in Denmark, where I'm from. I don't think that has ever happened during my lifetime until this month. Uh, and I think the reason is that the Brazilian central bank is very aware that when inflation arrives, they need to fight it uh, and they fight it fiercely. Uh, they hike interest rates to the extent needed to bring inflation down uh, because they've experienced inflation before they know how to deal with it. Uh, and the central bankers uh, on the board, they're very aware of this. Uh, while if you look at the board of the European central bank um, and uh, also um, economists around uh, European banks, most of them haven't really experienced any inflationary scenarios. Um, and that, I think that's one of the reasons why we've been so slow to react in the Eurozone compared to elsewhere. The other reason is that we have all of these um, yeah, tricky mechanisms in place within the Eurozone, making it very difficult to have one interest rate for each country, right? Um, and therefore, uh, we tend to to set the bar very low due to the uh, high indebtedness of, of the southern European economies, right? But still, the very simple logic is that Latin American economies, they know how to deal with inflation while we are acting all too slow in Europe.
And so we all know that the Fed pivot is not going to happen anytime soon. Um, I'm of I'm the belief that I have a hard time imagining the Fed pivoting uh, earlier than the second half of 2023 at the absolute earliest. And by the way, when I say pivot, the P word, which I'm calling it, it uh, that means P, uh, the Fed cutting interest rates. Uh, I do think an intervention is possible at an earlier state, uh, something like a Bank of England. Uh, they're never going to call it yield curve control, like what Bank of Japan is doing, but something to sort of make sure that the bond market is happy and, you know, TLT doesn't gap from 90 to, to $75 in, in a day. Uh, but that's not, I'm not counting that as a pivot. Uh, an intervention, perhaps. Okay, but what about a slowdown in hikes from other foreign central banks? Today, we had the Bank of Canada uh, hike interest rates by 50 basis points instead of the 75 basis points that was accept, uh, expected by many market participants. Do you think that we'll see a, not an easing, of course, but a slowing of the tightening, a moderation of the tightening from uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, European Central Bank, uh, Bank of Canada, other sorts of things? Um, uh, yeah, what do, you, what, do you, what do you say? Well, it seems likely, uh, even from the Fed, I guess, um, if you listen to what the Fed has told us over the past couple of months, um, they've at least prepared for the scenario of smaller incremental rate hikes, right? They still want to get to, say, 4.75 or 5% of the Fed funds, but probably at a slightly slower pace. Uh, but we've constantly been surprised by inflation, uh, leading them to bring us to that target faster than um, otherwise anticipated, right? So I think the Fed is at least mentally prepared for a scenario with smaller incremental rate hikes. Uh, but so far, they haven't really had the data to back that stands up. Uh, so of course, they can move uh, by 50 basis points or even 25 basis points when we look one, two quarters ahead with the incre incremental rate hikes. But we should remember that's not easing. I mean, of course, if, yeah. if, if they if they, deliver, they, if they deliver fewer rate hikes than what is priced in, you could argue that it's easing relative to expectations, right? Um, but still, it's very hard to see bonds performing in any decent way in such a scenario unless we get a clearer signal that they could actually turn around and move in the other direction at some point during the latter part of 2023. And I guess the bond market will be the first market to sniff out such a message from the Federal Reserve. We've seen that before, right? Uh, but right now, that's that's pretty far out the distance still. Uh, so yeah, we see those small attempts of, of uh, moving slightly slower from Bank of Canada, from Bank of England as well. We had been brought, bent out from the uh, Monetary Policy Committee uh, from Bank of England saying that, well, we, we cannot be as aggressive at the, as the market uh, tells us to be right now. And that was a, f a few weeks back when the pricing of Bank of England was absolutely crazy right after that um, uh, fiscal policy mayhem. But um, we're kind of back to, to square one on the political front in the UK. Um, everything is, is off the table when it comes to tax cuts and um, and so on. So it seems as if Bank of England at least got a, a slight relief from that front. But by the end of the day, uh, I mean, yeah, slower hikes, but we don't really see any clear pivots anywhere. Hmm. All right. Well, Andreas, I mean, you're running the show, but I think it might be time to introduce today's guest, <laughs> which is 
you. <laughs> and I want today's trade idea, I just want to really give you a lot of credit because the story this year has been the surge in oil and natural gas, particularly European natural gas, and worries that there would not be enough natural gas reached a fever pitch during the summer of this year where uh, nat- natural gas was, was priced in the many, many hundreds of eurowatt hours. And now uh, you stood alone against many folks and saying that natural gas, I'm seeing some weakness in the market. I'm seeing an oversupply. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of ships. A lot of LNG ships are coming um, to, to European shores. And you received uh, some pushback on that, to put it lightly. Well, it's happened. The, pr- the price of natural gas has fallen now below 100 megawatt uh, per hour. Uh, I'm talking about the, the Dutch contract, TTF. And yeah, for the moment, it seems good. So for the moment, uh, so far, your, th- your thesis has been right. And as well, European natural gas, uh, the, the intraday contract actually traded briefly negatively just be- because of weather. So um, you've had the wind at your back, Andreas, literally with the, with the weather. Uh, so you've been right so far, but do you expect going forward, do you expect, you know, natural gas to continue to ease? I mean, some people are talking about, uh, natural gas actually going negative, not just on an intraday contract, but just the storage is too full. Or do you actually think that, uh, this winter could be as bad as it once seemed? Well, I think we can at least call off the doomsday scenario for the next couple of quarters. Um, and if we look for the most imminent price move, I think we will move even lower. Um, and let me explain why. If, if you look at the current storage in Europe, we are running very close to 100% fill levels in all important countries. Um, when you look at liquefied natural gas arriving from Qatar, the US, Australia, etc., to Europe, um, the main regasification hubs are Italy, France, and Spain. Um, Spain is one of the countries running with the lowest storage capacity in Europe, and it's almost full. And we have a queue of ships waiting outside of uh, Jerez in in Spain and Cadiz, uh, the two major um, uh, regasification hubs in the southern part of the country. Uh, We also see ships queuing up elsewhere around the European shores. But the point here is that over the next couple of weeks, there will be no storage left in Spain because we are very close to 100% and the pipeline infrastructure from Spain runs to France and France is already at um, very, very close to 100% fill levels. I think they're around 97.5. So it basically means that you have nowhere to put it. Um, And the only way that you can change that situation is um, if we get daily withdrawals from storages uh, and that will require a a very different weather outlook than what we have over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and now I'm, now I'm um, really at deep water here, right? Because I'm essentially trying to predict the weather now. Uh, of course, I have no whatsoever edge in that, uh, in that sense. Uh, but if I look at the base case for the uh, uh, major institutes in Europe, um, they expect the temperature to be clearly above average for the first couple of weeks of November as well, uh, meaning that we will still have net injections into storage. Um, so no withdrawals from storage due to a um, basically a lack of heating demand. Uh, and therefore, I could easily envisage, um, say, one, two, three, four month, uh, sorry, four week um, futures very close to zero as a consequence of no storage capacity being left uh, and uh, a ton of ships queuing up outside of, um, of European shores. If you look at the price 
of storing the LNG at ships right now. It's at a record high price um, due to this queue of ships. Uh, and secondly, the amount of liquid natural gas waiting outside of um, European ports is also at a record high level. It's three to four times the usual level. So this is a, a almost bizarre scenario with a very short term massive oversupply. Uh, but of course, as soon as the weather turns, we will um, we will need this gas anyway. Um, and therefore, I think the bet from these operators is still to just wait outside, sit sit through this uh, to the extent possible, uh, and wait for higher prices in December or January. So short term, the weather will be hotter than it was expected, warmer, I should say. What is the weather going to look like in December and January? You know, you're not a meteorologist, but, but what are the, the the models saying? Is is January's weather forecasted to be warmer than it was previously thought? And, and yeah, I mean, when when do you think when do when do you think the pressure on on upward pressure on natural gas will start again? Um, if if we look at the current forecast uh, again, the base case from from uh, major institutes in Europe, um, the tide will turn in between uh, week three and week four in November. So we will start getting withdrawals from, from natural gas storages um, towards the end of November. And that's clearly later than usual. Uh, so if we look at when to expect the supply scarcity to return, because it will eventually return, in my opinion, then we are probably looking at a date um, in the first part of Q1 at the very earliest, uh, since this queue of ships will obviously have to offload um, before we really get to a situation where the storages will need to be refilled. So I guess we will see this theme of high natural gas prices return, uh, returning with a vengeance in Q1, but it will take another couple of months before it really returns. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, if, if you're a buyer of energy, you will get a super chance to lock in the price on forward contracts within the next, say, three, four, five weeks. Uh, because interestingly, and I'm not able to fully grasp why, when there's a move in the spot price in, for example, the TTF Dutch natural gas, you see a move lower also in the one year ahead natural gas price. Not to the same extent, but the, um, the beta is still positive, right? So if you see a move in the spot, you also see a move in the one year ahead price, which makes more or less no sense to me, given that uh, this is a short-term physical constraint um, due to a lack of storage capacity, right? So this is a good time over the next, uh, good timing over the next three, four, five weeks to to lock in long-term energy prices, if you ask me. It's stunning how, how quickly the narrative has changed. Andreas, how is it that electricity prices are so prohibitively expensive in Europe that Zinc smelters are, are shutting down. All, all sorts of refineries are shutting down. The input costs are insane. And yet the price of natural gas is actually negative. What, <laughs> what is going on here? Something, maybe I'm confused, but is, is electricity too expensive or is it too cheap? Is natural gas too expensive? Yeah, you know? I think we should remember that um, most corporates uh, and most manufacturers, they buy energy on forward contracts. Um, and if we look back, say, three or four months um, to the decisions taken by the European Commission in June. Um, they basically told right about everyone to panic at the same time. Uh, they told all member countries to start buying 
liquid natural gas with an arm and a leg. Um, and when you buy liquid natural gas, you basically mail order gas, right? <laughs> it takes a while before it arrives. Uh, and that's why we are in, stuck in a situation where everything arrived at the wrong time. Um, but uh, by the end of the day, the same message came across to the European uh, corporates at the same time. They locked in energy prices because they were kind of told to. They were told to panic by politicians, if you ask me. Um, rightfully so. Uh, and, yeah. and therefore, usually, um, the ultimate price of natural gas as an input source is, is a mix of forward prices and spot prices. And usually, a, um, a larger portion of that ultimate input prices made up by forward prices than spot prices. So even though we see this slide in prices, it's not necessarily something that you will um, see at the dinner table uh, around the corner um, in food prices and energy prices, etc. Uh, because you as a household, due to this mix of forward and spot prices, you only see a portion of it. Mm. So Andreas, I believe this is where on the macro trading floor, we ask you, what's the trade? Yeah. Uh, well, the very explicit trade um, for this European energy uh, crisis is to be long Czech Republican Corona versus being short Hungarian forint. That's obviously a niche trade, right? Uh, but the reason why uh, I say so is that Czech Republic is one of the very few solid electricity exporters left in the European Union, they have an abundance of electricity and they have a very solid grid. While Hungary is extremely reliant on energy imports um, and they are one of the very few countries still struggling to, to fill up gas, gas storages, uh, I guess other European countries are not that willing to, to um, sell natural gas to Hungary due to their um, love affair with Putin. Uh, that could be one reason at least. So. They're kind of stuck in a situation where they will likely have to fly to Moscow to try and beg for more gas. Um, and uh, the question is whether they will get so. So Hungary is in a bad spot when it comes to energy. Czech Republic is in, is in a really good spot. Uh, that's the niche trade. Um, otherwise, I think um, it makes sense to, um, to utilize this recent uh, semi-optimism that we've seen in equity markets to put on shorts on the German DAX again. Uh, if you look at historical correlations between the DAX and, um, and German GDP, a small recession is priced in, but not a recession that is nowhere near the extent that I expect given uh, observed energy prices over the summer. So that could be one, another way of, of, of playing this um, energy bet in, in a very straightforward way. But if you look at the sort of very imminent price action. You could make money by shorting natural gas, I think, uh, in Europe. This is uh, a short-term trade until yeah. until the middle of November, roughly. Exactly. Um, and one way of playing it is via the SALL ETF. It has at least a portion um, in, in natural gas directly. Uh, so that's the broad Bloomberg natural gas index. So I guess a mix of both US and, and European uh, natural gas prices. Uh, but we've uh, seen spillovers to the to the US natural gas price as well. I think um, it's it's down basically 50% in, in a matter of weeks in, in the US as well, right? The Henry Hop price. So uh, if the natural gas price drops in Europe, uh, we should expect spillovers to the Henry Hop natural gas price in, in the US as well. So any ETF being short, the Henry Hop uh, natural gas price in the, in, in the US will likely also work. Right. That is so, yeah, Dutch TTF is European natural gas. And then Henry Hub is American natural gas. I think an ETF, uh, 
UNG, I believe, is like the that has the short-term gas as well as UNL. So probably you, I'm pretty sure uh, UNG is the one that, if you're right, uh, folks would want to be short. Uh, but this is a short-term trade. This is do not listen to this in on November 17th and say, oh, Andreas said to short natural gas, and it's gone, you know, from 18 to 10, and then it goes from 10 to 50 again. So Andreas, your uh, your short DAX trade, does that have to do not with the fact that you think natural gas will go down in the short term until mid-November, but that it will continue to go back up and it will sort of uh, uh, be a crimp on growth and profits? Yeah, I, I released an article uh, on my free sub stack, uh, I think a month or two ago, um, where I tried to sort of calculate the medium term pain um, for the European economy as a consequence of the forward pricing of electricity and the forward pricing of natural gas at the time. Um, and if the market is right, that this is something that will take years to solve. Um, if you look at the forward curve, we won't be back at normal levels for natural gas and electricity in Europe until 2024 at the earliest. Um, then this is what I call a semi-permanent um, hit to European GDP. And Obviously, to a certain extent, the equity market will have to reflect future GDP. Uh, and for now, there is clearly a disconnect between that semi-permanent drop in GDP due to energy prices and the uh, overall equity sentiment in Europe. Uh, and I think that divergence is bigger than it is in in the US, and it's clearly bigger than it is in, in most Asian markets where um, we trade closer to reality, in my view. Uh, not that I'm aiming at buying China right now. I don't think you should <laughs> you should do that, no matter the case. Uh, but point being here that European equities are not, they're not pricing this semi-permanent GDP drop if the forward pricing of energy is correct. And I would even argue that Pricing for 2023 and uh, early parts of 2024 is too low by now uh, for electricity and natural gas. Because we should remember, if we look at the flow situation today, let's just take a status on that, uh, on, on European natural gas. Even though we have this very bizarre situation with the short-term oversupply, the daily flow of natural gas into Europe is between 25% and 30% lower than usual. Uh, so this is just a question of everyone filling up the storages at the same time due to this um, uh, political message being sent by the European Commission. Um, so it's due to sort of a very uniform behavior in buying. Uh, over time, the inflow of natural gas will not be sufficient to meet European energy demands. And if we look for medium-term solutions to where to buy the natural gas from when we don't get it from Russia, we probably need to look to Qatar as the main source of extra LNG capacity because the US LNG market is the market that is mostly available on the spot market. The Europeans have bought it all this year, uh, basically by, by bidding up the price. But if we need additional LNG capacity, um, then we probably need to secure medium term to long term contracts with Qatar. And they only want long term contracts because they also want to ensure that Europe is not moving away from natural gas over the medium term as we intend to politically. Uh, so they want uh, to they, utilize. They don't want Europe yeah. to say, oh, Qatar, we'll buy it for this, for the next six months, we'll buy natural gas. Yeah. But they want to lock them in. They want to say, no, in 10 years, you're going to be doing it and you're going to be in this as well. Okay, that makes sense. Andreas, I've seen a lot of folks over the summer talking about 
these sort of carbon intensive or I guess energy, energy intensive uh, equivalents. So, for example, coal was cheap relative to um, uh, uh, natural gas and, and oil was cheap as well. So natural gas was very expensive relative to oil and coal and other ways of generating uh, electricity uh, just just based on, I guess, their, their carbon content. Um, and so a lot of people said, oh, they expected coal prices to rise and oil prices to rise, as they, they have um, a, l- a little bit this, this summer. But actually, the way that that sort of discrepancy was corrected was by natural gas falling. So do you think that natural gas prices falling could be bearish for the price of coal, the price of oil, the price of uranium, uh, wind and solar, electricity in, in general? Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at the uh, equation, um, relatively speaking, between coal uh, natural gas and heating oil. Uh, you, you were obviously right that a couple of months ago, natural gas was the clearly most expensive source of heating and electricity. Uh, right now, uh, if you look at it, at least at the very short-term pricing, uh, it's no longer the case. Uh, so I guess the longer the weather stays as hot as now, uh, the more likely it is that the coal price will have to take a drop to sort of reflect the reality of natural gas being priced at a lower level. Uh, but I think in particular heating oil um, is at risk of a setback. Um, heating oil uh, has been traded very actively by speculators this year on a bet that um, natural gas consumption would be substituted with uh, heating oil consumption. Um, and we've seen various um, official messages, for example, in Switzerland, but also um, elsewhere in in southern parts of Germany, asking um, uh, the public sector to utilize heating oil instead of natural gas to prevent scarcity of natural gas. Um, But I guess as as soon as we get closer to a scenario where the storage is full, uh, the price is low, that story should basically fade, right? So uh, also, if you look at speculative positioning, heating oil should be a tremendous short into the um, end of the year. Well, Andreas, thanks so much for coming on the macro trading floor. All right. Now that we had our guest, Andreas, what did you think of the, the guest's uh, <laughs> trade idea? Uh, well, I, I guess I should try to play the devil's advocate and I'll allow you to do the same after this. Uh, I mean, if we look at the current status of the European energy market, uh, what I dislike about being involved trading wise in it is that I need to take a bet on the weather forecast. Um, and this this is usually something that I would like not to <laughs> have a view on in my portfolio, um, since I basically have no edge. I've said the same when I've um, taken positions around larger geopolitical events. I don't feel like I have an edge. Um, therefore, I try to, to have run as low risk as possible around such events. Uh, so. I actually decided to to close by my longs in the SALL ETF, um, which is a bet on on uh, on, on um, lower natural gas prices recently, simply due to the fact that now it's it's mostly a weather forecast bet, and I dislike weather forecast bets due to the mere fact that I have no whatsoever edge in those. Uh, so instead, I um, I stick to a few FX bets for now. Um, I, th- I still think it makes a ton of sense uh, to um, to uh, to stay uh, allocated in U.S. dollars to a certain extent as a European. Um, 
as a as a U.S. citizen, you can you can obviously gain leveraged um, exposure towards the U.S. dollar versus the euro via various ETFs. I think the UUP is one of those. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, Jack. Uh, so that's one way of, of playing it. Um, and then um, I'm kind of back to a very simple strategy when it comes to my equity exposure. Uh, I've recently said that in a recession, in a cost of living crisis. Um, that will be prolonged into next year. I think it makes sense to just look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, in your equity uh, positioning, buy whatever is at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy and sell whatever is uh, at the top of the hierarchy. And to put it um, in, in, in pictures, um, technology is probably placed higher <laughs> in the hierarchy and um, stuff like uh, energy, consumer staples, um, and other low multiple equities are, are placed closer to the bottom. Uh, so I've decided to buy consumer staples and short consumer discretionaries. Uh, and within the consumer discretionary basket, you have quite a few tech stocks. Uh, so, so you're like, you're long, like air, food, water, sleep, and you're short, uh, self-actualization, esteem and love. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a good trade at, the, at this juncture. <laughs> any any final comments from from your side, Jack? It's been a pleasure to have you on the macro trading floor again. <laughs> well, Facebook, or excuse me, Meta, is down much more than when we started this interview. When we started, it was only down like nine percent. Now it's down sixteen percent. So from uh, four p.m. market close on Tuesday, yesterday, so about twenty five and a half hours ago it's down 21% meta. So that's pretty close to $100 billion, if not more than it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, not, it's, it's, it's not something to, 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 to ignore. Um, no, I, I, got, I got nothing else. Andreas, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, best, of, best of luck to uh, Alf. I, I wish Alf a speedy recovery. Yeah, we wish Alpha Speedy Recovery. And uh, let's uh, remind the audience that uh, this episode is uh, brought to you by Saxo Bank. Um, if you want to uh, look uh, at the ETFs mentioned, etc., they, um, they're definitely there at the Saxo Bank Trader platform, um, a very decent platform with a, a wide range of ETFs available. We'll um, add the link to the Saxo Bank platform in the description on YouTube and on your podcast app. So go have a look if you're interested in joining Saxo Bank. Um, otherwise, um, let's cross our fingers that uh, Elf uh, makes a speedy recovery and joins the macro trading floor again next week. We have a very interesting guest lined up for next week. Um, I will reveal who it is on my Twitter in one of the coming days. Um, but other than that, Jack. You got to reveal to me, Andreas, as soon as I stop pressing press recording. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Uh, but uh, see you again next week, everyone. Um, we are obviously out every single Sunday with a new episode of the Macro Trading Flow. Thanks from Andreas Steno and Jack Farley. <laughs>